Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is May 28, 2015, and my guest is Nathaniel Popper. He is a business reporter for The New York Times and the author of Digital Gold, Bitcoin, and the inside story of the misfits and millionaires trying to reinvent money. Nathaniel, welcome to Econ Talk. Thank you for having me. Uh, your book is a history of Bitcoin, which, of course, is unfolding in real time right now. Uh, so we're going to talk about uh, that history, even though it's brief, it's pretty momentous. There's a there's a lot that's happened in the <laughs> short life of, of Bitcoin. Now, yeah. Early on in the book, you list a five-step process for a Bitcoin transaction. What are those five steps? Sure. Um, so, so each Bitcoin transaction begins with um, a person and their Bitcoin address, um, which is a, you know, a string of letters and numbers, initiating a transaction by signing off with their private key. So the, the sort of base of the, of the whole Bitcoin system is, is each person having their address and their private key, and only they have their private key. And with their private key, they can say, I want to send two Bitcoins to that Bitcoin address. Um, and that gets the process rolling. They, they broadcast a person doing that. Alice is the name that cryptographers frequently use, so I'll call her Alice as well. Alice initiates that um, transaction by signing off with a private key and then broadcasts that information to all the other users of the Bitcoin network. Um, and the, the key difference between Bitcoin and other financial systems is that there's no central institution to, to complete the transaction. Instead, it's all the, all the users of the network who are processing the transaction. So Alice sends that transaction, signed off with her private key to the other users of the network. And all the other users of the network are making lists of the new transactions as they come in. So um, at 10.30, one, one transaction comes in. At 10.31, Alice's transaction comes in, and they add it to their list of transactions, which is known in Bitcoin as a block. Um, and uh, the, the computers on the network are all, all of them are creating this, this list with the same uh, transactions, and they're running that whole block of information through a very specialized uh, function known as a hash function that uh, spits something out the other end. And essentially what they're looking for is a very specific outcome to come out the other end that is, in essence, a winning lottery ticket. And if uh, the, the, the other users on the network put their block, including Alice's transaction, through this hash function and it spits out a winning lottery ticket, they get, uh, that, that computer gets uh, a block of new Bitcoins, actually it's called a bundle of new Bitcoins, 25 Bitcoins. And that list that was, was fed through the hashing function becomes the official list of all the transactions and is added to what is known as the blockchain. And so Alice's transaction, we remember, is, is in that list, in that block, and that block with all the transactions is added onto the blockchain, um, which is a chain of all of these lists of transactions going back to the, the very history. first day of Bitcoin. Um, right. So, so what you end up with is that Alice's transaction is on there, is made official. The, tran the transfer is made from Alice's Bitcoin address to the recipient's Bitcoin address. And the computer that processed that, and uh, is is granted a new bundle of bitcoins, and and that's so that's how the transactions are processed, and it's also how new bitcoins are created, and um, and uh, then the whole thing begins again, <laughs> and and that that 
that process of creating new Bitcoins, new bundles of Bitcoin, a computer is supposed to win about every 10 minutes or so. And if they're doing it more frequently than that, uh, the system actually makes the problem a little bit harder uh, so that it gets, you know, so it's a little bit harder and, and they, uh, the, the, they're winners less frequently. But, but the idea is that a new bundle of Bitcoins is going to be released to a user of the network, something like every 10 minutes. And with that, all of their transactions, their list of transactions is added to the blockchain. So a couple of clarifying questions. Um, and I'm glad we're, you know, we've done a number of, of interviews on uh, Bitcoin in the past. And a number of those uh, interviewees show up in your book, uh, which is a lot of fun for me. Yeah. It'll be fun for, for our listeners. Uh, we'll talk about them when we get to it. But I want to get this technical side, uh, go a little deeper than we have in the past. And, and your book does it very well. So – First, the private key, the, that's just a password. It's just a very, very long, complex 64-digit, is that correct, password? It's generally 64. It doesn't actually have to be, but that's generally what it is, and 64 when, letters and numbers. And when I open a Bitcoin account, I get assigned that, and that's mine, and it's, it is a very, very valuable piece of information because it allows people to transfer Bitcoins, allows me to transfer right. Bitcoins, and so – uh, it's extremely uh, important. We'll talk later about about the issues surrounding yeah. that because that's fascinating to me. But I, I want to understand the hash function a little bit and the winning lottery ticket. The the point of the exercise that that some computers on the net are going through, what they're doing, I assume, is verifying. I'm not quite sure what they're doing. To gen, in other words, <laughs> it's called mining, and yeah. and you earn Bitcoin by. Uh, doing some kind of algorithm that's running in the background on your machine uh, right. that is processing uh, transactions as they come through. So Alice transfers her two Bitcoins to um, to Fred. Bob. No, yeah, no, Fred. it's got to be Fred. Uh, <laughs> okay. I don't know why. No, no, we can make it Bob. So Alice transfers her two Bitcoins to, to Bob, and I see that. My computer sees it. It it's, looks at it. What's going to happen that is going to – Result in that, um, in that being verified, and why is it important? Because it's important. It's not just a dance that right. that the system goes through. And this was the part I really hadn't appreciated until I read your book. I remember things, but this was one of the things, which is that the stability and veracity of the system comes from computers racing to to create the next up the updated version of the blockchain. Try try right. to go into that a little more deeply. Okay, well, let's see if I can. Not, not you're, too much you're, more deeply, by the way. Yeah, I'm just, right. I'm just trying to get you're, the idea of it. This is this is very impressive because you are you are certainly starting at the 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 most difficult part of the of the whole sort of Bitcoin system, which is how transactions are actually verified and how new Bitcoins are created. I frequently try to uh, skip over this part if possible, but you're right that it is exactly in this crux that that the real kind of uh, conceptual beauty of the system lies and, and the, it's, the reliability and it's, of it. And, and I do, right. want, I do want to assure listeners, we are going to get to the dread pirate Roberts, uh, which is <laughs> not, no, I'm pretty sure is no relation as well as other um, exciting, um, uh, the hiring right. of, of hitmen and other things. So there's, right. there's good stuff coming. Just hang in there. Go ahead. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, at each, at each of these steps, there's, there's there's some some very sophisticated math going on. I mean, even at the level of the your your Bitcoin address and your private key, they're not just uh, they're not just two sort of randomly generated series of letters and numbers. They have a mathematical relationship um, that means that your private key you can verify that you have your private key without sharing it with anybody else. And that's a, that's a very kind of tough thing to get your head around, but, um, it's what, it's one of the things, one of the elements of cryptography that makes the system work. Um, the, the other sort of big picture thing that makes this system work is that all the computers on the network, um, that are doing this work, keep a copy of all of these records going back, keep a copy of the blockchain with all the transactions. And so because the computers have that, when Alice says, I'm going to send two Bitcoins from this Bitcoin address to Fred's, they all can go scan back through the history and make sure that Alice really has that money. 
And so that was actually something I, I left out in the description earlier, but, but that's, a, that's a, a crucial step because the, all the computers are checking that Alice really has the money that she's trying to send. Um, and uh, once they do that, only then do they add Alice's transaction to the list of all the other transactions um, to create these blocks. Now, uh, the other, one of the other difficulties that has long plagued efforts to create new financial systems, new types of money, especially new decentralized types of money like Bitcoin, is uh, this question of whose record is the official record. If you are decentralized, um, you have all these different people. What if, what if one person over in, in Argentina disagrees with how much money Alice has um, you know, disagrees with, with another computer that's trying to do the same work in, in London. And the purpose of this system, the purpose of, of creating these blocks and the computers racing to win the lottery is that when they win the lottery, their record becomes the official record for the last 10 minutes. And so you just have one record, even though it's a decentralized system, that person's record becomes the official record. And everybody else's records for that 10 minutes are sort of struck from the record so, and, and everybody can agree, okay, that is what happened for the last 10 minutes. It's so by winning, of, winning, let me just get the winning the lottery yeah. part because I think that's the only part I'm still a little confused on and I think I, I finally see it. That when a, when a uh, computer on the system uh, verifies having gone through the ledger that the that Alice does have two Bitcoin to to spare, right? And that they have, and that Bob has now received them. Uh, the verification of that is what uh, wins you the lottery, essentially, and and allows you to be the uh, the new official ledger that everyone else will now build off of. Right, essentially, yes. The, I mean, the part that's this- the part that I that I still don't get. Well, yeah. Of course, there's a lot we don't get. That's not important, though. Is there? There's an issue of of fifty one percent that some right. some majority of the of the system of the computers on the system doing the verification have to agree with with my uh, new version of the blockchain, and right. that that is what prevents uh, a malicious attack by a single rogue right. machine. So try to explain that. Right. Um, uh, so, so the, the, the winner of each new block, um, you, you know, the, the way you win this lottery is by feeding your list of transactions through, uh, a, a hash function that's on your computer and it spits out, um, a, a winning ticket essentially. And really what, what that means is it spits out a series of letters and numbers with, a specific number of zeros at the beginning. Everybody's trying to find something that they can feed into the hash function that will spit out something with, say, three zeros at the beginning. And so the winner sends sends their winning response around so that everybody can see, yes, this person won. I'm going to add their block to my blockchain that I'm keeping on my computer. And, um, and, and I'm also going to grant that guy 25 new Bitcoins. Um, so the, the, the question that comes up is, well, what if there is a malicious attacker who gets uh, 20% of the, uh, of, who, who has a lot of computing power and he gets a lot of people to agree with him that, um, okay, you didn't get the winning ticket, but I'm still going to add his Bitcoin to the network and give him the new 25 Bitcoins. Um, that's, that's dangerous because you don't want it to be possible for somebody to just wantonly generate new Bitcoin that would kind of, uh, ruin the system. It would ruin the faith in the system. Um, so, so the way the system works is that 51% of the computers at least have to agree that somebody won and only once 51% agree does, does their, uh, do, do they become the official record? Now, generally, this isn't an issue. Generally, there's a winner. The winner sends it around. Everybody agrees. And you really have uh, 100% of the computers that are, um, uh, you know, agreeing on what the recent transactions were, who gets the Bitcoins. 
But this is designed so that one rogue player can't just start granting him or herself new bitcoins. You have to you have to win over the other people on the network in order to get so it's, uh, new bitcoins. It's like peer grading. You know, you, you you answer the question, and then your your peers assess whether it's correct or not. And there's enough, and they're using the same methodology, of course, that you claim to right. have used to have generated the correct number. And right. So right. we've talked about it before. This is just sort of background. It's the, the spitting out of the twenty five is uh, is limited, so that ultimately uh, there will never be more than twenty one million bitcoins in existence. Period. And it's the growth in bitcoins is declining at a declining rate. Um, there's fewer and fewer issued each year, correct? Right. Well, every four years, the number of new bitcoins every ten minutes is is halved. So uh, we started at fifty. We're now at twenty five. Uh, I, I think it may be some point next year. We we know it will go to twelve and a half. And so on down to the time when there are 21 million in the world, which is expected to be sometime in the year 2140, if everything goes as planned. Really? So it's a ways. Okay, I'm, I'm, it's interesting. So let's. Um... So and 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 Russ, just uh, <clears throat> um, this this is a it's a it's an interesting place to start this this get really digging into the details of how the system works, and I think it's something that you hear most people who are involved in Bitcoin say that it really took them months to grasp this. And, and I think part of what is so alluring about Bitcoin is that it does have all of these complicated parts um, that, that, that uh, are harnessing advanced cryptography and so forth, but they come together into this system that has a somewhat sort of simple outcome and simple smooth functioning and that people can take part in this even if they don't necessarily understand each of these steps you you know the software is set up to make it possible for people to start doing this without them understanding what necessarily a hash function is or how di blind digital signatures work um, but it's a it's a it's one of these systems that's um, that's very complicated under the surface, but the sort of conceptual um, advances that it allows are are somewhat straightforward and and really do allow something that that wasn't possible before. Um, and so it's this it's this sort of it, it's it's another one of the sort of mysteries of Bitcoin that I think draws people in and makes people want to understand this. How, how is it doing this? And just what is it that is new about the system? Well, it solves, we've talked about this before, but it, 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 it's, it's really is extraordinary because it solves two, it appears to solve, and, and what you just went through in some detail is how this could possibly be. It appears to solve two uh, important problems rel that, are, um, that, are, that arise in any type of monetary system. One is, how do you prevent the issuer of money from uh, debasing the currency and exploiting mm -hmm. the current holders of the currency? Uh, so the limit on the rate of increase and then the ultimate limit of 21 million is rather, rather effective at that. But the second is, and this is the one that, that Mark Andreessen talked about uh, when he was guest on the program, which is the, the ability to transfer funds at very low, very, very low cost because – you don't have to worry about whether the funds you're receiving are going to stick. So as, as you point out a number of times in the book, uh, and if you get on the web and start reading about Bitcoin, it's kind of – it's just mentioned over and over again. Once you've transferred your Bitcoins, it's over. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, there's no – no, it wasn't my credit card. I didn't really buy that item. The, the merchant defrauded me. So uh, when, when you pay, uh, you know you've been paid, and that part of it, which is what – that conversation we just had was all about is is really what's uh, the remarkable part of this, that at a relatively very, very low cost, you can verify that money has changed hands. And that's um, that's really pretty spectacular. Right. And, and, and even on a slightly broader uh, conceptual level, the, the notion is that because of this math and cryptography and what, what makes what you just said possible is that transactions – 
go through without needing any central player to verify that they went through. They just, through the magic of sort of math and cryptography, uh, transactions just happen. And once they happen, they are sort of locked in by cryptography. And um, it's a, you know, it, I, sometimes when people hear that, it, it, the, the significance of that isn't clear, but um, it has all of these implications um, that, that get people so excited about this idea. And really for, for me, the, the genesis of this book was, was less the conceptual beauty and more seeing just how excited this made people and how many people, once they sort of grasped the system, essentially left their old lives behind to, to kind of chase this promise and try to make it work. And so, you know, my book is filled with all of these people who sort of, uh, have become these converts in an almost religious way to the to the idea and the promise of Bitcoin. Uh, let's get into some of those. So, uh, one company that drew a lot of attention and um, in a in a negative way was um, was Mt. Gox. So, explain what a Bitcoin exchange is, why people were using it, and what went wrong there. Well. A Bitcoin exchange is at the simplest, uh, in the simplest sense, the, the reason they came about is because people wanted to buy Bitcoins and um, you can they mine. Didn't, they Bitcoins. didn't want to mine them. Yeah. <laughs> right. You can mine Bitcoins, but the system is set up so that my, as, as more and more people are trying to mine Bitcoins, it becomes harder. And so somewhat early on in the game, about uh, two years in, there were enough people trying to mine that it became hard to do so, hard to win any Bitcoins if you just had, you know, your laptop or your home computer. And so people who wanted Bitcoins needed a way to, to buy them. And people who had Bitcoins wanted a way to cash out and, and sort of secure value that they could use, you know, at a, at a McDonald's or somewhere that didn't take Bitcoins. Um, so, so people created exchanges where you could uh, buy Bitcoin with dollars or euros. Um, and the way these exchanges functioned most simply was was for for a central uh, uh, exchange, really a, a central person to collect people's money, and then the people, when they wanted to buy bitcoins, would have credit, and that the money would be transferred to somebody who was selling bitcoins. Um, and so this exchange became, you know, much like a brokerage uh, e-trade that has your money and and facilitates trades for you and has people on both sides who are buying and selling. Um, but, you know, what, what became clear pretty quickly with these exchanges was that they were becoming the very sort of centralized institution that Bitcoin had been created to try to get it, to move beyond, you know, Bitcoin, the idea of this decentralized system was that you didn't have to rely on banks and governments anymore to hold and transfer your money. Um, that was the beauty of this. And yet, very quickly, Bitcoin moved back to a world in which there were these centralized institutions. The biggest one for a while was Mt. Gox that held everyone's money and it held both their dollars and their Bitcoins. And uh, and now so, so now you were sort of back at the at the very situation that you'd been hoping to move beyond when Bitcoin was created and and the reason bitcoin hoped to move beyond that was because when you have a central institution it's hard to trust that central institution it's hard to trust that they're going to um provide the the necessary security it's hard to trust that they're not going to take your money and run off with it and um what we saw time and time again with bitcoin was that these centralized institutions uh that, that were holding people's Bitcoins couldn't be trusted. You know, when it, when it comes down to money, uh, it's just very hard to trust other people to, to, to hold on to your money uh, for you. So, so one of the, for those of us who were on the outside or hadn't been paying much attention, when Mt. Gox uh, – talk about – before I ask the question, talk about what the uh, denouement, the ending, the end game for Mt. Gox was yeah. and what went well, wrong. It, it 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 ultimately went down in uh, in early 2014. Um, at that point, it held something like a half a billion dollars worth of bitcoins, um, 
you know, at that time, each Bitcoin was worth something like $800. Um, and they sort of, it's, it, there was very clear that there were problems in Mt. Gox. People were having trouble getting money out and nobody knew quite what the problem was. And finally, um, the owner of Mt. Gox, a guy named Mark Carpellis, who was a Frenchman who was living in Tokyo, um, who was a kind of reclusive guy who rarely spoke with people and he had a staff, but he really sort of ran the thing himself. And, you know, so it was, it was a centralized institution with a central figure who really, I mean, it was kind of, you know, as, as concentrated authority as you could get. And it was with this guy, Mark, who it turns out wasn't a particularly advanced programmer, wasn't particularly good at operating this company, wasn't a great, uh, in large part because he didn't take input from those around him. Um, and uh, he eventually came out and just admitted that he didn't actually know where the money was. It wasn't in their wallets. The, 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 all the Bitcoins that it was holding for customers, the customers thought they had, the, the Mt. Gox itself didn't know where the money was. And, and quite frankly, that's more or less still where we are. We don't know whether it was stolen, embezzled, hacked, lost. Um, there are several investigations looking at this. I think a lot of people, uh, think there was some, somebody who was sort of slowly stealing money from Mt. Gox's Bitcoin wallets over time. And it may have been somebody inside the company. Um, I think most people don't think it was Mark Carpellis himself, but, but Mark Carpellis, what he, what people do blame him for is, um, general incompetence. And, um, and the amazing thing is that he had shown himself to be a rather poor manager of this business several times and people still kept their money with, with, uh, Mount Gox. And so there were certainly several warning signs that you should not have your money with this company, but, uh, but as is so frequently the case in financial markets, Mt. Gox had liquidity. It had buyers and sellers. And that was the most valuable thing to people. They wanted to be able to move in and out of Bitcoins very quickly. And so they stuck with Mt. Gox despite all the problems that uh, surfaced again and again. So let's as, – as what I was going to ask before is that you know, when that happened, when that was a headline, I remember it pretty vividly. A lot of people thought, well – that's it. Bitcoin's done. You know, you lose your. You're supposed to be safe. You lose your money. But as you point out, and as you've said, uh, this was not a Bitcoin problem per se. This was a problem with somebody who was uh, processing Bitcoins. It wasn't an inherent problem with the Bitcoin software. But I don't. What I what I don't fully understand is that let's let's say I wanted. Um, let's say I'm a miner. I've got a lot of of Bitcoins. And I want to uh, turn them into dollars because I want to buy something that from somebody that doesn't take Bitcoin. So I go on the exchange and I make it. There's a transaction. I transfer my bitcoins. Do I transfer them to Mount Gox that that transfers them? I mean, how did that work so that people were holding large amounts of Bitcoin in in Mount Gox's coff coffers? Because there's no coffers. There's no there's no real. There's no vault. There's no wallet. Really, it's all. Virtual. So, what went? What was the better way to say it? Is what did I trust Mount Gox with that they betrayed? Well, essentially, a person when they wanted to use Mount Gox did transfer their bitcoins from their own Bitcoin address, which they controlled with their key, into their Mount Gox account. And um, what Mount Gox did when they got those bitcoins was not what a typical bank would would do. Obviously, banks uh, generally keep money in segregated accounts, so each person, each person's account is 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 separate, and um, and uh, the 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 bank's own money is separate from its customer money. At Mt. Gox, people were transferring their money into their Mt. Gox account so they could sell it. Um, and sell those bitcoins or buy more bitcoins. And Mt. Gox sort of had these big omnibus wallets. They, they were essentially Mt. Gox's own bitcoin addresses. Um, and uh, Mt. Gox then had control over that money. I mean, the person could log in and ask to transfer bitcoins out. Um, and people could have, people did not need to keep their money 
with Mt. Gox. And one of the fascinating things is that people seemed to want to keep their money with Mt. Gox. And, and that's been an issue again and again in Bitcoin's history is that it was designed to give people control over their own money so they didn't have to rely on, a, on any other institution. But it seemed time and time again, even the people who were the biggest advocates for that ideal often didn't trust themselves with their own money and they wanted to trust some outside institution to hold their money for them. Um, and so, you know, it was, it was somewhat unnecessary for people to keep money with Mt. Gox in the way they did, but people just didn't want to deal with, you know, holding that money themselves, keeping track of their passwords. You know, they didn't, they didn't trust themselves essentially. And so Mt. Gox had that money in their own Bitcoin wallets and, so an attacker had to sort of and did find the weakness in Mt. Gox's systems. Um, well, you tell the story of of, of Marco Pellis walking around pieces of paper, I think, that had private keys written down on them, and it just kind of a one of the issues is that it's great that your sixty four digit number is uh, is safe. It's great that cryptography is such that. You know, it's not the name of uh, it's not your birthday or some or your right. some something that people can figure out when they get on your laptop. But it's a very large number, so you can't memor. It's hard for most people to memorize it, so you have to write it down. Now, once you do that, you're kind of in trouble. So right. you talk about people who put the number in their laptop, take their laptop off the internet, put it in a safe deposit box. Right. Um, these are these are smart, savvy people. So one of the challenges it seems to me with Bitcoin is that it has this incredible security feature. But if you forget your private key, it's not like you can call up the website and say, you know, forgot my password. Right. Please send me another. It's gone. That's it. It's gone. So yeah. that number become the the virtue of the system becomes one of its challenges, it's which flawed. is how yeah. do you keep track of that? And and so um talk a little bit about that and what uh, what some people are trying to do to make that a little easier. Well, um, you're, you're absolutely right that the private key is essentially the most valuable thing in Bitcoin. It is essentially your money. If you give somebody else your private key to your address, they have access to all of your money and can immediately transfer it to their own address. So, um, in fact, when you're paying for Bitcoins to have Bitcoins transferred to you, Sometimes the easiest way to do it is just to hand over the private key, you know, written on a piece of paper. Um, now, obviously, a piece of paper is not the 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 best way to to secure it. The piece of paper can blow away, can uh, burn up, can you know the pay the ink can run. Um, and so people have have been working on these new systems to secure those private keys. Um, it's also a problem, though, if you store your private key on a computer, somebody hacks into that computer, finds your private key, once again, your Bitcoins are gone. And that's happened many times. People have lost millions and millions of dollars when a hacker got access to their computer, got their private keys, and uh, transferred, the money, transferred their Bitcoins out. So, so what people have moved towards is systems where they keep those private keys essentially offline in a place where no hacker would be able to access them. Um, and you've gotten increasingly sort of ambitious efforts to secure those private keys and, and you will secure the private key with another private key that's, that's, that's stored in another vault somewhere. And uh, perhaps the most ambitious company doing this these days is a company called Zappo. Which is uh, X, where a lot XAPO. of XAPO exactly, which is uh, created by a, a relatively young Argentinian entrepreneur who lives out in Silicon Valley. This is a guy who got a lot of the big names in Silicon Valley excited about Bitcoin. His name is Wences Cazares, and a lot of those guys came up against this problem. They they. They got excited about Bitcoin. They bought Bitcoins, but they said, okay, how do I store this $10 million of Bitcoin? And Wences, um, working with uh, tech, tech teams that he's used in the past, 
has created this very ambitious system in which there are these keys are essentially stored in vaults under mountains in, in on different continents, and you need to have two of the keys from two different continents in order to move the money. And you know, each I mean, it's 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 when you when you get into it and when you when you see how you have these these computers stored under under mountains, it does it does raise the question, you know, is this any different than gold, which you also have to, uh, you know, secure under mountains and never touch, and um, you know, it becomes a very elaborate, time-consuming, expensive process. But um, it it hints at just how valuable these private keys are. And man, with that thing that's fascinating about it for me is that. You know, gold has no identifying characteristic. I can't say, well, that's, you know, you, you find a piece of gold. Well, that one's mine. It's like right. cash. Cash, you can't say, well, that was my $100 bill if, you, if somebody finds it. You have no way of proving it's yours. The whole beauty of Bitcoin is that there's an underlying anonymity to it. But once you create that underlying anonymity, that means that whoever has my – if somebody does hack my private key and steals my Bitcoins, there's no way of finding out – where they went. You can't say, oh, you've got – those were mine that are in your account. Those have my stamp on them or my – there's no um, there's no way to, to deal with that. And I assume, for example, that if you die, if you don't tell your heirs your private key, they the money's gone. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and and um, if you're alive and you store your key somewhere and – yeah, I mean, again, it's just – it's all about that private key um, I mean, I think there is one there is one wrinkle here, which is that you have you know this blockchain is essentially this public record of of all the bitcoins in the world and what address they're assigned to, and um, everybody has that record. So you can see if you know your address, um, you can see if somebody transferred bitcoins from your address, hacked in and transferred bitcoins. You can see, oh, okay, those. 50 Bitcoins that were stolen went to that address over there. And so you've had that kind of analysis done um, in the wake of Mt. Gox. People determined, okay, these were the addresses that were Mt. Gox's uh, Bitcoin addresses. And you can see when the Bitcoins left those addresses and went to this address. And people sort of try to trace the movement of money around um, and try to find a place where you can identify, oh, okay, I know that address belongs to this company, so it must have finally exited the system here. Um, and that, you know, people sort of have talked about that as a, a very promising tool within Bitcoin that, that, that you have that transparency. But uh, ultimately, it's been very hard to, to track money down when it has gone missing. You know, you may know that it went to this address, but you have no idea who that address belongs to. Um, and so, uh, you know, once again, people have th these, these, these situations in which money has been stolen. Uh, it's been very hard to ever track down uh, what became of it. So speaking of anonymity, let's talk about Silk Road and the Dread Pirate Roberts, which is an incredible part of the, I mean, it's just an unbelievable – you couldn't make it up. You couldn't right. make it – put it in a movie. Uh, I'm sure it will be a movie, but uh, – yeah. <laughs> um, Talk about how Silk Road got started and, uh, again, how it uh, unwound. Yeah, it was started by this this young kid who'd gotten into – um, Austrian economics. He's sort of a young hippie kid from Austin, Texas named Ross Ulbricht. And uh, he dropped out of grad school at Penn State. He was studying physics, chemistry. Um, and he had this vision for creating, a, you know, an online market, a sort of eBay for all the things that you can't buy on eBay. Um, so drugs. And he, he began actually by uh, renting a cabin out and near Austin and growing a bunch of mu psychedelic mushrooms that were the first product offered on the site. And uh, Bitcoin, he, he, he understood that Bitcoin was absolutely crucial to making this work. You know, you, before this, if you wanted to buy drugs online, um, you needed to use Visa or PayPal. And as soon as the cops got wise to this, they'd just subpoena the records from Visa or PayPal, 
and they would know exactly who did the purchasing and who did the selling. Which is why, and, which is why most drug transactions take place locally on corners right, with, cash, with cash, where you personally yeah. take the money, and there's no record of the transaction. Right, and um, and uh, Ross Ulbricht saw, understood that Bitcoin could make this possible because as long as somebody kept their Bitcoin address anonymous, the cops could know the transaction that you know, that, that took place and that resulted in heroin being purchased, but they wouldn't have any idea who people were on either side of that transaction. And, Except um, and, it, and in a sense, this was the, this was the perfect, um, this was the perfect first experiment in Bitcoin. This, this, for the first two years of Bitcoin, really nobody was using it for anything. It was, people were kind of sending it around. It wasn't really worth much. But um, and, and people had asked throughout the first two years of Bitcoin, how do we find something that people can uh, can buy with Bitcoin that they can't buy with with, you know, the traditional financial system? And even before Silk Road came around, people were aware that it was likely to be illegal transactions that were going to be the first sort of use case for Bitcoin. You know, this was going to be something that. Um, that wasn't possible before. And because, you know, if, if you could, if you could already buy things online with dollars, why were you going to move to Bitcoin? Even if it was a little bit cheaper, I mean, you know, why is it worth it? But here with illegal transactions with something you couldn't do before and that people very much wanted to do. And so the Silk Road, um, took off and, and it really, I, I think in ways that a lot of people now want to downplay showed that Bitcoin actually worked because people were sending, you know, hundreds of dollars across the world to pay for drugs. And it was going through every time. Nobody ever complained that the Bitcoin payments didn't work um, or that the Bitcoin payments weren't going through. And really the system did maintain the anonymity of its users in the way that Bitcoin initially imagined. Um, I mean, Ultimately, three years down the road, Ross Ulbricht was caught. I mean, this became a massive enterprise with millions of dollars of purchases a day. And Ross Ulbricht uh, was, was making millions of dollars himself and commissions from these purchases. Um, and one of the fascinating things, I mean, he became, you know, he became this wanted criminal with, with, uh, federal agents across the country chasing him, trying to track down who is Dread Pirate Roberts. You know, he, the Dread Pirate Roberts was the name that Ross Ulbricht used on the site, and he never revealed who he was in real life. And he used several different technologies to obscure his identity, among them Bitcoin. And um, what's amazing is that when they finally got to Ross, it actually wasn't because of a weakness with Bitcoin. It was because Ross had early on uh, posted his email address, his personal email address uh, in connection with, you know, some postings about the Silk Road. And ultimately they caught on to that and figured that out. Um, I mean, people have said that Bitcoin is less anonymous than it was initially advertised. And I think that's true to a degree, but I think part of what's so amazing about the Silk Road experiment was the degree to which it did actually work as intended. And I think it did, to some degree, prove that Bitcoin worked. Um, and it, it was that first use case. And, and in some sense, I think Bitcoin is still looking for another use case that is as, as, as unique and valuable as what Bitcoin made possible with the Silk Road. One part of the Silk Road thing I don't understand is um, is related to Bitcoin's reliability. So, uh, if I wanted to buy an illegal substance via Silk Road, uh, I would I'd have to have it mailed to me, uh, usually at an anonymous post office box, because that would be part of a that would be part of the problem. Also, so if I'm getting right. I'm receiving it anonymously, what if the quality is awful? What you know with with eBay, I mean, the amazing thing about eBay is that it relies on um, the some inherent level of trust to start with, as well as, of course, the ratings of, of vendors right. by by the users. 
was there something in Silk Road? Because otherwise, you know, yeah, it was. When, when they, did the when did the money change? When did the bitcoins change hands? When I received the drugs? When I ordered the drugs? It's a big trust issue there that that I've never right. understood. And, and there that was uh, um, there there are two two points there. One on the on the latter on the latter question of when did the bitcoins change hands in Silk Road? Um, the, the one thing the Silk Road did provide that was very valuable was essentially an escrow service. Um, the buyer of the drugs would transfer the money when um, initiating, you know, when, when, uh, when ordering the heroin from Amsterdam. And essentially the Silk Road would hold on to that money until the drugs arrived and the buyer said, okay, I got them, uh, the, the money can go through. And if there was some dispute, if the buyer said, I got here, but you know, there's less than I expected right. or it was poor quality, they could, you know, dispute the transaction. And, uh, the silk, so the silk road did in some sense serve as that central organization that, that eBay does, um, or that the, you know, a bank does Amazon. when you dispute a oh. transaction with your credit card, the, the Visa or American Express tries to determine whether, your dispute is legitimate or your, or your, your complaint is legitimate. Um, so it wasn't a totally decentralized system, but, um, it did, it was decentralized in the way that eBay was and that it was the customers, um, who were rating all of the products, not eBay, you know, on, on, on or Silk Road. And so you had really very much the same system, that eBay uses, which is that when you buy, um, heroin from, uh, you know, uh, some guy in Amsterdam who has a screen name, that screen name becomes a His very brand. Yeah. valuable brand and identity and people rate the products that come from them. And a, a, a screen name that gets bad reviews, uh, people stop buying from them. And, and what's, what was amazing was that, something like 99% of the products did get the highest rating. And, and it was very hard as it is on eBay for new sellers to get started because they don't have a reputation. And so new sellers, if they were trying to establish a reputation would offer better deals, yep, sure. um, would offer cheaper goods. And so, so it did in that sense work very much like eBay does. So this story took a very dark twist and I'm, I'm interested in the journalism side of this as well, but, um, Ross Albrecht, uh, unbeknownst to him, uh, asked an FBI agent who he thought was a, a buyer or seller of drugs, but was actually a, a, a plant, uh, to, to kill somebody for him, uh, according to your book. So, but yet he's not being charged with that. So he's in jail, right? He's he is he's actually in jail. He's actually uh, being sentenced tomorrow. So he has been. Uh, found guilty by a jury on all the counts that he was money laundering. Um, yeah, boy, it's it's a long <laughs> list. Um, but, and interestingly, though, as you point out, none of the charges were murder for hire, which were some of the most explosive charges when Ross was initially arrested. And um, you know, according to the um, indictments and according to uh, affidavits, Ross actually as Dread Pirate Roberts actually commissioned several murders for hire. Um, and, and when they got Ross's computer, they, his laptop, when they arrested him, he had actually kept the logs of um, his chats with these people, these assassins who he thought he was hiring. So, so they got all the records of these conversations uh, when they arrested him. And, and, and according to those records, he did this several times. People who he was worried we're going to compromise the system or compromise the identity of buyers or people who seem to be stealing money from, uh, from customers or from the Silk Road. He, um, he hired people who he thought were, were assassins. It seems that in the end, most of these people were either law enforcement agents or scammers. And so it does seem that nobody in the end was killed, um, as far as we know. Um, but, but, Equally importantly, the the prosecutors decided not to push those charges um, against Ross. They, I think there was a sense that – I think there were a couple things that probably led prosecutors to make that decision. 
One is that it seems that nobody did actually die, and so it would be harder to convince a jury um, perhaps to find somebody guilty if they commissioned a murder, but it wasn't against a real person. Um, but the other element here, and this is where it even takes a more bizarre twist, um, is that the undercover law enforcement agents were themselves uh, breaking the law by blackmailing Ross and by stealing Bitcoins that they were getting in the course of their undercover work. So these two law enforcement agents, uh, I think one was with the FBI, one was with um, Department of Homeland Security uh, last month or, or quite recently were themselves arrested. Um, and so this was actually after Ross's trial. But I think if these 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 murder for hire charges had come up in court, the government would have had to deal with the fact that the federal agents who were commissioning, who were who were involved in this, were themselves corrupt, and became such a quagmire that I think probably the prosecutors decided that it wasn't worth dealing with, and they would just get them on all these drug charges. Um. So this is this will come out. After this will be released on the web, uh, when you're listening to this, listeners, you'll this, the sentencing presumably will have already taken place. We'll put a link up to that story as to the fate of Ross Albrecht. But um, what's amazing about this whole Bitcoin story is it's it's this new stuff all the time. Uh, there's still a lot of uncertainty about whether it's going to make it or not. And right. I wonder if you could talk for a minute about how you accumulated the information that you're willing to talk about. Of course, when you read. When you read a book about Bitcoin, there's an inherent secrecy about it that's that I find somewhat um, uh, charming and uh, and weird and interesting. So yeah. you you for example, um, you write that Gavin Andreessen, former guest on the show, was the third person to alter the source code, which is open source by the way, for the whole Bitcoin system. That's another issue uh, that's pretty amazing. How do you know? Uh, there, there's a lot of things that in this history, and, and I, I just to tell the listeners, this book is an incredible page turner. Um, it reminded me a little bit of the frackers. It could have been called the hackers. And mm -hmm. the reason is, is that the, the people who are involved are so colorful, they're so entertaining to read about, and you write about it so well. So oh, how'd you get this, the, the history? Any one of them would have made an interesting book, and we've, right. we've got eight of them, ten of them. Um, how, how did you get the information? How did you? What was the reporting process? Uh, and how do you know that some of the things you talk about in this book are actually true? Well, you know, this the, this sort of goes back to this the the fact that Bitcoin. Oh, and and I forgot. Sorry, sorry to interrupt, Nathaniel, but yeah. we we do have to mention. Not everybody knows this that that the creator of Bitcoin, Satoshi Nakamoto. Uh, nobody knows if he's real, if he who he is. Uh, his identity, and that just adds another layer of mystery about the whole thing. Right. That's a that's a whole another uh, conversation in itself. And and I I mean the book provides my sort of best guess and my best estimate for who it likely is and who people within the Bitcoin community have sort of think it is at this point. But it's certainly not decided. Um, but but you know Bitcoin does. In one sense, it has this this incredibly secretive, anonymous element, and on the other hand, it, it offers this radical transparency. You have this log of every transaction that's ever happened, and the open source software, there are records of every change that's ever been made and who made them. And of course, the people who are making those changes can decide to remain anonymous, but often, particularly among the developers, who are working on the software, there isn't that same desire for anonymity. So you can really go back and look from day one who made each change. And for the first year or so, it was mostly Satoshi Nakamoto. And then uh, actually a young Finnish kid, a college student, started helping Satoshi. And he made uh, a, a bunch of the next changes to the software. And then Gavin Andreessen got involved and he started making changes. And you can see each one he made and what he did to the software if you, if you look at those logs. So, um, so to a degree, you know, this is all there to, to be double-checked. Um, and and uh, but in order to get the stories from these people, of course, I had to you know win win their trust. Essentially, I could know that Gavin made that change, but he needed to tell me why he did it, why he got involved, and um, 
So I, I spent, you know, six months reporting out this book. I traveled around. I went to Tokyo to meet Mark Carpellis, who's running Mt. Gox, and another guy who lives in Tokyo named Roger Vare, who's known as Bitcoin Jesus. Um, and I went to China, where Bitcoin has gotten to be, uh, has had some big ups and downs and met the major players there. Um, and, and I mean, I'll say that as a reporter, it, it was actually a surprisingly easy world to penetrate because but these small. people, it, it, well, it's, it's small and one, uh, that's part of it. And then the other part of it is that the people who are involved in this care so passionately about it that they are very proud of what they're involved in. I mean, not, not everybody, you know, Satoshi Nakamoto remains anonymous. But many of the people who have played the most crucial roles in this are incredibly proud of having played that role. And so they opened up about their stories. They shared emails. And obviously, even some of the less attractive sides of what they did, once they started talking and I had emails from somebody, then I could, you know, pull a little bit more out of somebody else. And, um, and I ended up getting a pretty well-rounded picture of the, the sort of central characters. And, you know, part of what's, what, what was amazing was that many of them were totally open about their use of this. They weren't actually involved in this, um, in order to, to sort of remain anonymous. That, that was one element of the system, but a lot of the people who were most involved are, are very transparent about their use of it and why they're excited about it. And so that was a, a boon to me as a reporter. So when Bitcoin was started, and you write about this quite a bit uh, in, in a very thoughtful way in the book, there, there were a lot of uh, libertarians who were excited about the possibility of a non-governmental currency, and a lot of people dismissed it early on because it wasn't likely that that was going to work. It wasn't going to be an alternative to the dollar. Then there came this surge of interest from Silicon Valley uh, that it might – it's not – the the fact that it's going to be an alternative currency. It's going to be a payment system. The blockchain allows this – low-cost uh, way to, to transact across uh, space, and it's, it's really an amazing feature. And, and of course, Bitcoin's going to evolve. There, may, there are other digital currencies. There may be, I suspect there will be regulatory things put in place as well as uh, people willing to give up some of the anonymity in return for other benefits. There, there will be other ways that some of this technology is going to evolve, and we have no way of knowing what it is. But it strikes me that where we are right now it's as if we lived in a world where there were there were hundreds and hundreds, maybe a few thousand, maybe a few thousand, maybe, maybe a few thousands of people who would have, say, uh, a Unix operating system on a laptop, but no no Mac, no no Windows, no user interface except for technologically sophisticated people. And those people start playing with with computers and, and the internet, and they're having a great time, and they're saying, "Hey, this thing's going to be big." And the rest of us, when we get a taste of it, we go like, "This is too unfamiliar to me. This is too weird mm -hmm. for me. I'm going to sit. I'm going to sit back and wait till it gets better." Mm -hmm. And it seems to me we're right at the cusp of that right now. We're right at the point where, and, and of course, Bitcoin struggles with the fact that it it has no quote underlying value. Neither does most money. Neither does gold. Really, not in any real sense. But if enough people start to believe that it's worth using, and that's I think part of the really extraordinary culture of Bitcoin, it will it will make it. People will start using it as a way to to buy and sell stuff. And we're right at that cusp now. Uh, do you agree with that? Do you think Yeah, I what's think your, I mean I what think, do you think the future give me the near term future and the longer term future. So you'll have a paperback coming out in a year or so that'll be full of new have a whole new chapter because there'll be a whole bunch of stuff to talk right. about. Uh, but are we gonna get over the hump? I think it's probably going to be slower than than the real, you know, fanatics think. I mean, a lot of the people in this book imagined that by now Bitcoin would already be a global currency, um, and it's it's very far from that. You know, all the bitcoins are worth something like three billion dollars. You know, a, a tiny little company. Uh, we joke that you know Yahoo could just buy Bitcoin, buy all of the outstanding Bitcoin, you know, in a, in a moment, as could Apple. Um, and um, 
so so I think you know it's 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 very it's still a long long way from real mainstream use and I think it is a useful comparison to think about other technologies in early days you know oftentimes people compare this to the internet it's a it's a new protocol that allows for something new but you know the internet it did take companies finding a way to make it accessible it it took, uh, you know, the first web browsers and it took the first really good search engines to make this new information network useful. And I think Bitcoin is still really looking for the companies that will uh, make this new way of of transferring value around useful. And there are a lot of companies out in Silicon Valley that are trying to do that. There have been a lot of venture capital money that has gone into this space supporting companies that promise to do all kinds of things with Bitcoin. Some of it is just buying and selling Bitcoins, but other companies are trying to use it to facilitate remittance transfers from, you know, uh, to, to the Philippines, to India, to Mexico. Other companies are trying to use this to, to, uh, serve as a ledger for other kinds of transactions, for stock transactions. NASDAQ right now is, is doing an experiment using the blockchain as a way to, uh, settle and clear stock transactions. So, um, I, I, I think it's going to be still a while before this becomes something that ordinary people come into contact with. Um, I think probably the most hopeful near-term success or the most hope for near-term success probably does lie with these big financial institutions that are trying to find a way to harness Bitcoin. Um, and, and oftentimes they're, what they're trying to harness is the blockchain and this this new way of instantly settling transactions. And so that's why you've seen Goldman Sachs recently making an investment and a former top JP Morgan executive started a Bitcoin company that wants to do this sort of thing. So I think, quite frankly, that's that's the place where there might be the most movement just because you have to win over less people to get, if, if a bank starts starts using this in some way, that's going to be more money than if you got a million people uh, excited about this. And so if you just get that one bank, that can make all the difference, um, at, you know, something that would take 10 years of convincing individuals. Um, so I think that may be where there is the, the movement in the near future, but I do think this is going to take a lot longer than a lot of the uh, Bitcoin followers want it to. And, I, you know, again, I think I think the Internet and this is we're six years into Bitcoin. So, you know, if that's maybe 1995, 1996 for the Internet um, and not too many people were using it at that point, not too many people saw the value in it. Um, these things these things take time. And uh, and and it's certainly possible that uh, it takes time and, and it goes nowhere um, and that that the incumbent systems are are, you know, entrenched enough that that this doesn't supplant them. But it certainly seems like this is already starting to get people thinking about money and, and how money works in new ways. So if you're listening right now and you say, oh, this is kind of fun, I want to be a part of this. Um, tell me what a what a current non-technical persons, a non-miner. I can't mine. I'm not, I don't know. Right. I, I can't I want to figure out what a hash function is. And I, I don't have the computing power to, to win that lottery ticket. So I, I want to go buy, I need to get some Bitcoins. My employer pays me in dollars. I got to go buy some and then mm -hmm. I want to use them. So what are my options right now in May of 2015 uh, if I want to do that? Well, I think the the easiest companies to use in the United States and the, the companies that are the most consumer friendly here um, are probably Coinbase and Circle, um, which both of which have big funding from big uh, venture capital firms. And um, I, I'm uh, Coinbase is, is actually quite a bit bigger at this point. Circle is a very interesting company um, because they they make it relatively easy to buy bitcoins. But what they're trying their their big push is to get people to use bitcoins for peer to peer transfers. So essentially, if you were going to send a check to your sister or your friend, um, that's a rather clumsy process. Circle is trying to use this so you can instantly transfer them money 
um, in the way that, that right now is also possible with um, PayPal or this startup called Venmo. Um, but, but Bitcoin does make it quite a bit cheaper and simpler to do that. And it makes it also possible to do that across international lines. So you can send money instantly to, you know, a relative in Argentina or Europe. So I think Circle is sort of an interesting company that's trying to experiment with ways in which Bitcoin might allow something that isn't so easy in the current system. So I've got some now. What can I do with them other than um, admire them and and look at my um, ledger now and then and realize I still have yeah. them? No one's got my private key. What, what can right. I actually acquire with Bitcoin well, right now? There are There are many significant American companies that have – taking the plunge and are accepting Bitcoins. Uh, you know, the most famous ones, Dell, Overstock. Uh, actually, Overstock is where I'm offering my books that people can buy it for Bitcoin. Um, Expedia. Um, there, there are several companies where you can buy things. I, quite frankly, I think for buying things online, for a consumer, and particularly an American consumer, Bitcoin doesn't offer any great advantage. There's no real reason for um, an American consumer to use Bitcoin instead of, uh, instead of their credit card. I think, you know, it's often said that Bitcoin took off in the places that needed it least. The United States financial system works pretty well. The currency is pretty stable uh, on, on, a, on, a, on a, you know, relative to, to other countries. And so there isn't so much of a need for it here. I think in the course of my book, what I found was that the places where people did see some real value in this were places where there were less stable currencies, where there was less access to credit cards in the financial system. So the most interesting place for that is Argentina, which was really essentially the only place where I saw ordinary people using Bitcoin for sort of everyday transactions um, because it because it it was better, cheaper, and faster than the alternatives. And um, it, these people didn't understand the underlying technology and they didn't care about the politics. They just wanted something that was cheaper and faster. And in a place like Argentina, Bitcoin is uh, cheaper and faster than the existing banking system. And so I think a lot of the interesting experiments are going on in places like that where uh, where the credit card systems and everything don't work as well as they do in the United States. My guest today has been Nathaniel Popper. His book is Digital Gold. Nathaniel, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thank you so much for having me. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.